Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Dinty W. Moore, who worked as a journalist, a documentary filmmaker, a zookeeper, a modern dancer, and a Greenwich Village waiter before realizing he wanted to be a writer. He is author of the memoirs To Hell With It and Between Panic and Desire, winner of the Grub Street Nonfiction Book Prize, The Accidental Buddhist, Mindfulness, Enlightenment, and Sitting Still, The Writing Guide, Crafting the Personal Essay, and is editor of the Rose Metal Press Field Guide to Writing Flash Nonfiction, among many other books. He has published essays and stories in the Georgia Review, Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, The Southern Review, Kenyon Review, Creative Nonfiction, and elsewhere. He is founding editor of Brevity, the Journal of Flash Nonfiction, and teaches master classes and workshops across the United States, as well as in Ireland, Scotland, Spain, Switzerland, Canada, and Mexico. He is deathly afraid of polar bears. Welcome, Dindy. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm, it's just a thrill, and I knew I wanted you on the program, and then I read this bio and thought, I have to ask you about the zookeeping and the polar bears. I used to volunteer at a zoo in Seattle when I was a teenager, and I also volunteered at an aquarium working with marine mammals in California. So when were you a zookeeper? I started out, I got hired, well, I was... Officially, I was never a zookeeper, uh, but I worked as a zookeeper. I got hired as a college kid to sort of paint fences and pick up trash and all that sort of stuff that you do. I think it was actually late high school at my local zoo in Erie, Pennsylvania. And within a week, my boss realized that while all the other seasonal workers were up in the woods smoking dope, (laughs) I actually was doing the job. Um, So he eventually promoted me and promoted me, and the following summer... What I was was the fill-in zookeeper. The regular zookeepers who had some sort of credentials all took summer vacations for two or three weeks. So they needed backup. So, for instance, there was a, you know, a special zookeeping team that took care of the bears and the tigers. I was part of that team while some of those members were on vacation. There was a special zookeeping team that took care of the apes and monkeys. I was part of that team for two or three weeks. So I was sort of a rotating pitch-hitting zookeeper, and it was an amazing experience. Did you always know that you liked animals? Were you surprised by this particular position you filled? Well, I, you know, I didn't have animals growing up, uh, which had more to do with my mother's fear of dogs and cats. Uh, But I loved, you know, I loved dogs and, and other animals when I would meet them. I did not realize I would fall in love with the exotic animals at the zoo as much as I did. Uh, I eventually segued into being night watchman for a while. And that was really amazing because the animals act entirely different at night and when they're not surrounded by shouting people. And it's just, I, you know, they have souls. I believe those animals have souls and you spend time with them and you see the, into their souls and you can't, you can't not be moved. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and sometimes I find that the older I get, actually, the harder it is for me to tolerate any kind of cruelty to animals or even worse than it used to be for me. It's just even harder the older I get to think about how hard it is for some animals. What about the polar bears? Before we start getting into writing, I have to know about this. 
it's a little bit of a running gag I have in some of my <laughs> in some of my books and in my Facebook profile and and then that bio I sent you. But the polar bears were unrelentingly trying to kill me. Um, I was warned early on that you know the, the, a lot of the bears and tigers and we had them in you know what moated areas where, where they could wander around. But the other also was a back room where the animals came to sleep and where the animals came to eat. And you'd open that door and there were bars and you'd throw the food in and the animals were like, thanks. But polar bears would hide on either side of the door. And the minute you opened it, their paws would come around, just hoping to snag you and pull you in. I've been warned about that. And goodness gracious, it was true. They are just very predatory and not willing to be. I mean, I, th there are ethical questions about zoos. As much as I loved my job there, the older I get, the more I learn, you know, that th it is not a good place for animals to be. Um, so whether the other bears, the other kinds of bears and cats were tame or whether they were just depressed by the zoo environment, that's something I know more about now and it's not a happy uh, question. But the polar bears, they were not tame. They would come at you. Mm. You know, that reminds me a little bit. Um, people love otters. They think otter, generally people think otters are so adorable and they're so cute. And when they're sleeping and they wrap themselves up in kelp with their babies and absolutely. But I remember when I worked at the aquarium, the Long Beach Aquarium in the Pacific for a year, we were warned to stay. Like I was feeding the seals and sea lions, these giant, giant, like there's this one particular uh, sea lion named Miller who at his heaviest during the year was 600 pounds. And it's a little intimidating when you're out there on the platform feeding and training but they actually told us to be the most careful of the otters because they were vicious and one of our senior zookeepers marine mammologists had like scars to prove it so but yes you know i realize that we're talking a lot about animals but it is true like it's 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 a very complex issue and i i'm happy to know that at least we have this kindred interest in you know animal care and this background because i do think that writers who have done a lot of things prior to writing have so much great material to draw from. Yeah, I really, I mean, at the time, I mean, my bio makes it sound more romantic. At the time, I was about my, basically my 20s. I was bouncing from job to job, feeling like, I mean, I would really, I'd say to myself, gee, Dinty, you're, you're good at almost everything and not really good at anything. <laughs> and I would, that would, I would, you know, berate myself with that because I dabbled with filmmaking. I dabbled with writing. I dabbled with performing. I took acting lessons. I, I, I waited a lot of tables. I, I mopped a lot of floors. And I, I thought, I thought I, I was wasting my life while all my other friends were out there starting careers. In retrospect, now that I'm uh, the age that I am and I've had my writing career and been able to write about so many different things, I think of those years as a gift to, you know, I picked up a little bit in, in acting that helps me with my writing. I picked up a little bit in dance classes that helps me with my writing. Waiting tables taught me so much more about people. Um, I'm a, I, at the time, I felt like a failure. Right now, I feel like a great proponent of people should spend their 20s bouncing around doing uh, what their parents would call unadvisable things uh, and then worry about starting a career when you get to be 30 or 32 or something. Yeah. 
Yeah, I totally, I see that and I agree. I did a lot of stuff too. We have a lot of intersection because I was an actor for a while and I've telemarketed and served tables and all that stuff. So yeah, I fully agree with that. So, okay, you've written so many books, but you know, for the sake of this conversation, I would like to just hone in on Between Panic and Desire. I really enjoyed reading this and I know it came out a little while ago. You share a bit about, you know, the different jobs there. And it gave me a bit of a sense of your progression as a writer and an editor and how you, you know, developed this voice of yours. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about the work you've most enjoyed doing, you know, over time as a writer, if you can even pinpoint that, and how your magazine Brevity came to be. Well, well the first half of the question, um, as you've anticipated, is hard to answer. Each, each project has been fascinating when I wrote my early books, were, which were sort of hybrid journalism, uh, looking at Buddhism in America, looking at this this strange new thing called the internet. I'm talking about 1995, when people didn't know what it was. Um, when, I, when I wrote those early books that kind of segued into memoir, that was a fascinating thing, project, and I thought it won't ever get any better. And then there was Between Panic and Desire, which remains the book I'm proudest of, I think, because it's sort of my heart book. It's like, here's here's Dinty trying to make sense of Dinty on the page and sharing it with everybody, uh, warts and all. But then, you know, I've done some more recent things, uh, including my book about hell and purgatory and Dante, To Hell With It. If I had 13 children and you asked me to tell me which was my favorite child, uh, I probably would not be able to answer that. And I, I feel that way about my books. But what I do feel, and this is probably a better answer. The ability to write about so many different things. I mean, I could have had a career writing about technology because my first book was about internet technology. And I might have had a, 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 a more successful, wealthier career because I would have become a pundit. But I didn't go that route. You know, my second book was about Buddhism and my third book was about myself. The ability to write about so many different things, also at the essay level, you know, I've written magazine articles and literary literary magazine articles about so many things. That's such a gift of it as a nonfiction writer. It's like you're curious about something, you dive into it, you spend time with it, and then eventually you get to move on because you're curious about something else. Um, mm-hmm. So that's really been a gift, and that's that's my favorite part about the type of writing I've done. You asked about brevity. Brevity is a magazine. It's always been online, Brevity Mag, as in magazine, brevitymag.com, that publishes nonfiction that's 750 words or fewer. It's 25 years old. It's got a great, it's had a great run and it's still running. Um, Just was named for an award yesterday by Writer's Digest. Congratulations. They listed their 101 best websites for writers and the top website for creative nonfiction writers was Brevity. Oh, congratulations. Yes. Maybe honor is a better word. It it felt good. This magazine's been around for 25 years, and Writer's Digest calls it the best website for creative nonfiction writers, which feels pretty good after all this work that we put into it. Um, It started, I guess, 1997. The internet was new. I was really curious about this thing that we now call the web, web pages. we don't even call it that anymore. We just, it's just our lives. But I was really curious about it. So I started playing around with HTML and trying to build a website. And I ended up starting a magazine. Um, and that magazine was Brevity. 
I think the idea, and to be honest, it's hard to remember all those years back. The idea was never to have a magazine that lasted 25 years and that had, you know, tens of thousands of readers. The idea was just sort of for me to fool around and see if I could make a web page. But I think the idea for the very brief nonfiction came from all of the flash fiction anthologies that were coming out and, and getting good notice at the time. Writers of fiction were very interested in, you know, can we write in 500 words? Can we write in 750 words? Can we write in 100 words? What can we do with this new short form? And, and to the best of my memory, I thought, well, maybe we could do that in nonfiction. Let me devote my magazine to that and see what happens. I never would have predicted the amount of attention and growth that we've had, but I'm happy for it. Yeah, it is something else. It is a force. These days, do you enjoy the shorter forms? Do you enjoy longer essay forms? Well, as a reader, I enjoy both very much, including you know, book-length memoirs. As a writer, I find, and, and luckily this is not being, uh, this interview is not in person with a live audience or people would throw fruit at me. Uh, <laughs> as a writer, but whose other job is an editor who runs this magazine where people are sending their work and then we can't take all of it, so we have to say no to some of it. I find it really, really hard. I'm, I find it incredibly hard to, to write a story in 750 words or fewer. I'm gobsmacked by what a good job the writers whose pieces we eventually publish in, in the magazine uh, each issue, how they manage to solve this puzzle of telling a, a, a complete and fresh and powerful story when their hands are tied by the word count. You asked me a little while ago about the form. I, I mean, I think the beauty of the form is, is you really do have to learn how to compress and you really do have to learn how to write sentences that do two or three things at once. You really do have to think of a story as not a list of things, but layers and layers of meaning that weave throughout the, the usually very, you know, usually four or five paragraphs. That's actually a skill that I find hard to do but I, but I still try my hand at it. That makes, I think, I'm talking to all the writers out there now, even trying to write something that short, even trying to learn how to layer and compress, uh, whether you're successful or not, and keeping it under 750 words, which is somewhat of an arbitrary number, it's gonna make your longer writing better. Um, I, look at, I look at people who write 20 page essays. I look at Cheryl Strayed's early work. I look at memoirs that I, that I love. And my, my goodness, you know, the writer is doing on the on every page what you know what we are trying to do in brevity on what is essentially a two-page essay. Writing is fascinating. Writing is you can you never stop learning, which is one of the things I like about it. And trying to create this artificial experience for the reader that will feel so real is sort of a and it's nuts and bolts, and we can talk about all the nuts and bolts of it, but it's also kind of a magical thing. You know, you're creating this this reality, even though we're writing nonfiction, it's a reality that doesn't actually exist because not because you're lying, but because you're you know, you're you're trying to recreate it with words and the truth of life isn't made up of words. What is something that you suspect many writers would be surprised to learn about how or why work gets selected for your pages? That's a great question. Um we get so many submissions now. Another thing that uh, makes my head spin, uh, we are able to accept around 2% of the submissions we get. 
which means we get a lot of really, really good submissions that we don't publish. So if you've ever been turned down by brevity, we don't think your work sucks. We just, for that issue, something else excited us even more. Two things I think that maybe writers don't realize is, you know, there's a, there's a tendency, and I'm guilty of it myself early on, to think, oh, this is what literary writing sounds like, or this is what a brevity piece sounds like, or this is what insert name of, of, of favorite writer here sounds like. Um, so I'm going to try to sound like that. And, and it's, and it's both a false effort and it also squelches the writer's own voice. So I'm, I, before I even make the harsh judgments of, is this a complete story? Does it feel powerful in 750 words or fewer? I'm, I'm, I'm reading for voice. It's like, oh, this is a peculiar voice. This is, this sounds a little different. This, oh, that started in an odd place. Oh, this person has interesting syntax, like maybe they're from somewhere, like Kansas or California or <laughs> Maine. Um, don't, don't, don't even out your writing. Let your personality come out even in your word choice and syntax and, and sentence construction. That's different than sloppy sentence construction. You've got to be very deliberate. But when I read a piece and I think, oh, I hear a person behind that, um, that that's the thing, the peculiarity uh, that catches my ear first. Allow yourself to be peculiar. That's that's my answer. Can I ask you something that you might notice that personal essay and memoir writers might be leaning on, aside from that, that you feel may not serve their pieces? Is there anything else? I, I hear that you're saying evening out or trying to sound like someone that isn't you kind of shows up on the page or at least the lack of the personality and the voice of that particular writer may be apparent. Is there anything else you find that's like something trending lately or something you're seeing a lot of that you think is not the strongest choice for writers? Well, it's not really trending lately because it's always been around. But even though most of us who teach writing talk about this, and even though most writers can probably, even beginning writers could sort of recite this bit of advice, the tendency to explain too much, the tendency to try to explain what the piece is about, it's really hard for writers to let go of that. Um, two problems with that. One is it's usually kind of dull. The second problem with that is readers like to put two and two together. You've got to put the facts in front of them. You've got to put the images in front of them. You've got to put the characters in front of them. You've got to give them the emotional moment and then let them make sense of it. That's more interesting if you're a reader, uh, if the writer allows you to make sense of it. And you're also going to believe it and feel it more strongly as a reader. When somebody in the real world explains to me something that happened to them and what I should think about it, in the real world, I'm just sort of like, yeah, okay, well, that's what you think I should think about it, but I'll make up my own mind later. When I see something with my own eyes and I make up my own mind what it means, which is, which is the heart of that, nugget of show not tell you know when i see it with my own eyes on the page and it plays out in front of me on the page and i sense what's going on and then form my own conclusions about what's going on boy that really resonates with me and i think that's true of most readers so uh, let me make this clear early drafts we all explain too much early drafts we all write lousy sentences you know, the answer to all these questions is to be relentless in your revision and self-editing. And like anytime you find yourself explaining, 
Say, do I need that? Do I need that? And then the insecure voice in you will say, yeah, you need that because otherwise maybe they won't understand. And then, you know, say, no, no, that's not the answer. I'm going to take it out and make them understand some other way with some detail, something in my mother's facial expression, something in my father's voice, something in how my sister turned and walked out of the room is going to make them understand how I feel about that scene. I don't have to tell them. Yeah, I I think that is so clear. And the, the way that I've been reading lately, I've been reading a whole bunch. And uh, I mean, that sounds funny, but I've been reading a whole bunch for the podcast and also for pleasure on the side. And what I notice is that when, and, and I'm trying to, you know, sort of qualify it, but I think what it is, is that for me, part of the experience of reading tons of exposition and telling is that I almost feel like I've been talked at relentlessly for like lots of pages, lots of time. I just feel like someone just chatted at me. I went to lunch with them and they just talked the whole time and didn't allow any breathing room, didn't allow any curiosity into the conversation, didn't allow me to ask questions or just take anything in. And that's, it's sort of like the parallel for me. Whereas when I feel like I've been put into a situation that I can experience through sensory and seeing and noticing and curiosity, then I actually feel like I went to a place that the memoirist or the writer took me to. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, imagine yourself in a coffee shop and a stranger sits down and starts telling you lousy things about his ex-wife. All you really learn is, is first of all, you don't, you don't know the guy, so you don't really trust his word. And all you really learn is what he wants you to think about his ex-wife uh, versus somebody sits down and says, I want to tell you a story. And then they just tell you a story about something in their marriage. And you're allowed to make up your own mind about, you know, what, what do I think about what happened there? Yes, yes. So let's pivot here. And I would love to learn a little bit about your writing process. And taking into consideration that, like you mentioned before, all of our projects and our interests are different. And the way we approach different writing projects might reflect that. But is there a way that you generally like to approach something that you have to write? Could you share an overview of how you like to work when you're drafting and revising? Um, Sure. Like, like, like one of my patron saints, Anne Lamott, I believe in really lousy first drafts. Um, I was taught early on by a, a novelist named David Bradley that uh, you should start any writing project. This is true of all art forms, actually. But you start any writing project sort of in child mode. You're just playing around. You're just pushing the sand around in the sandbox. You don't know what you're making. You don't know why you're making it. You're just having fun playing with words. Um, I, on a good day, that's what I do in my early drafts. That's what I let myself do. To go back to what David Bradley taught me, somewhere in the middle, uh, you start getting more adult. You know, start as a child, become an adult, and say, well, what am I doing here? Why am I in the sandbox? What am I making? Is this a castle? Is it a gothic castle? Um, does it have turrets? What is there a moat? What kind of, what am I actually doing here in the sandbox? And why am I doing that? But you don't do that too soon. You let yourself play a while. And then at the very end, and this is about the end stages of revision, David said, that's when the parent voice, child, adult, parent, uh, comes in. The parent voice is, uh, you know, do you think those earrings go with that blouse? Um, you know, why, why, why oh, are you, you going to wear that to church? Oh, is that first paragraph really a good idea? Or are you just fond of it because it's been there for three weeks? Oh, that, that sounds good, but it doesn't really say anything. 
um, or that says what you want it to say, but it just doesn't sound very good. It's sort of flat on the page. That kind of adult parent voice, which can be a little chiding and certainly hypercritical. If you let that in too early, that's the definition of writer's block. If you ask yourself those questions early on, or allow, the, allow those voices in, boy, that's a dumb sentence. Boy, that's a trite idea. Oh, that's been said a million times before. That, that's the parent voice that can be a little chiding and it can be death to an early draft. So start in the, in the, in the sandbox, just playing around with sand, halfway through, halfway is arbitrary. Depends on the length of the thing and how much time you have. At some point, say to yourself, okay, I've created this enormous mess in the sandbox. What do I want to make of it? And then try making sense of it. And, and, and as Alison K. Williams likes to quote one of her teachers, save the great stuff and get rid of the good stuff. So you know, once you, when, you know, take all that great stuff and say, what am I going to do with this? Where is this leading? And then save that editing, chiding, is this really good enough? Has this been said too many times? Is it too obvious? You know, save that for the last stages of revision. Having said that, I am a relentless reviser. If I've had any success as a writer, um, well, I have, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. It's due primarily to the fact that I, I work the back end of a piece forever. People, I meet people who say, I did three drafts. And I'm like, really? I do 33 drafts. I do 43 drafts. I'm not going to judge anybody. I'm just going to say it works better for me to really, really, really power down in revision and, and, and be my own best friend and worst critic. You know, the, the critic's a funny word. Critic sounds like criticism, which sounds bad, but you know, being your own worst critic is also being your best friend because it's going to make your writing jump to that level you want it to jump to. One thing, I mean, I took a lot away from what you just shared and the part about approaching your work as a child when you're first beginning any kind of creative endeavor really speaks to me in that it offers you permission almost. For me, what I took from that was that it feels like I'm off the hook when I sit down to a project. I don't have to be result-oriented because it is more childlike. And I'm basically the older, wiser, maybe more experienced, possibly critical, jaded part of myself is on vacation or in another room or, you know, taking a nap. And I can just play, as you mentioned, and I have permission to do that with no result, no, uh, none of that analytical part of me. And I think that's a great way for me to think about it, because even if I'm becoming impatient, if a writer is becoming impatient with their progress on something, they can remind themselves and give themselves that permission to only play at that point, because that's where things can grow. Yes. And one of the questions you sent me a few questions ahead of time was, you know, parting advice. And I'm not sure if we're there yet, but we beat ourselves up too much as writers. Um, you know, we, we question people, people who aren't writers are like, well, then why do you do it? But there's amazing rewards to being a writer, but we beat ourselves up too much. Um, oh, I hate my first draft. Oh, these, this paragraph is so dull. Oh, I, I don't even think it's interesting enough. Why would anybody care? Um, and as you pointed out, well, give yourself permission to write uh, a couple of pages that aren't that interesting and nobody's going to care and get them out of the way. And then the next three pages, there's going to be something interesting going on that you may not have discovered if you hadn't written those first three pages that really aren't that interesting and nobody's going to care. Don't beat yourself up about that. You know, and then we get rejections from magazines. Um, we beat ourselves up like there's something horribly wrong with us. 
no, the, the PC either isn't ready yet or the editors just didn't get it. So my parting advice, um, look for ways not to beat yourself up. Um, why the, the money end of being a writer is just not that great. If, if you can't enjoy it, don't do it. Um, and I think people do enjoy it, but they need, they need to stop. They need to turn off all those negative voices that call them failures, call them, call themselves failures. If you're writing stuff and it's getting better week to week, then you're not a failure. You're, you're a success. You're getting better. Thank you for that. I was hoping you could read the excerpt I sent you from Between Panic and Desire from Three Milestones, the sections two and three. It's a fairly short essay, which is a chapter in the middle of Between Panic and Desire. Um, it begins with what, what we talked about a little earlier, my journalism career that came before, after my zookeeping career, before my acting and waiting tables career. And I was sent to cover the Johnstown, Pennsylvania flood. And then eventually I was offered the opportunity to go to Three Mile Island, which if you don't, if you're older or don't remember, was a nuclear facility outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which was suffering a partial core meltdown. That's the first of the milestones. That, and that, that's what ended my job in journalism. Uh, part two is the second of the three milestones. Two. A few weeks later, I relocated to a sleepy rural town in central Pennsylvania, spitting distance from the Mason-Dixon line. My friend Jim's new wife had secured a position teaching the young women at Wilson College how to draw and paint. So that's where we started our film company. Chambersburg had wide avenues and spotless front porches and even a pool hall downtown. It was like a scene from The Music Man, except in the movie there was no character that rode his bike around and around in circles, lost and disheartened, a Kodak film canister full of marijuana in his pocket. One day, sitting high on my bike, I glanced through a window in an alleyway and saw a young woman in a dress, the dress covered by a green checked apron. She was thin, dark-eyed with flowing hair, and she was setting a dining room table. I saw a male figure disappear into a doorway, presumably the kitchen. I didn't see much more than that because the bike was coasting, just like me. But in my mind, it was all clear. The woman in the window was newly married, her future settled, her young husband embarking on a stable, secure career. He was everything that I was not and would never be. She was all that I would never have. It embarrasses me to say all of this so maudlin and melodramatic, but the moment is true. I wore my loneliness like a badge in those days. You couldn't have a relationship when you had so many secrets. You couldn't be good enough for someone else when you clearly weren't good enough for yourself. I thought, oh well, and I pedaled away. Three. Three years later, my father died. I had been living with the woman in the dining room window for two years at that point having met her by roundabout coincidence. We spent all our time together, starting about the moment I realized her roommate, the fellow she was setting the table for, was gay. Nice guy. The woman in the window was sitting next to me when the call came that my father finally passed. It was throat cancer and expected. She came with me to the funeral and she attended the small wake and dutifully entertained embarrassed guests while I went to a back bedroom to referee a fight between my sisters over who, over who would inherit my father's old desk. Later that day, Renita and I drove to the Lake Erie shoreline, my dad's favorite spot, 
and right there, both of us sitting on a big hunk of driftwood, I asked her to marry me, which she did. And so it goes. Thank you so much. I was rooting for you while reading Between Panic and Desire, and I felt invested in you really early on, maybe the first page. And I think that has so much to do with your voice. Can you recall, and I know this is a complicated question, but I'm hoping maybe you can shed some light on it. Can you recall when you, you know, homed in on your voice and believed in the voice that you you landed on in many of the pieces in this book? That's a, that is a complicated and a good question. I'll, I'll preface it by saying confidence in your own voice or confidence in your own writing comes and goes uh, all these years later. And, and, you know, having been lucky publishing in, in wonderful magazines and with great book presses, um, you know, my confidence still comes and goes. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, hey, I'm a great writer. I wake up in the morning, <laughs> I wake up in the morning thinking, I wonder if I can do this again. Um, but that, that, one of the reasons I think Between Panic and Desire is my favorite book is that is where, as you've uh, intuited yourself, where I kind of found my voice. I think what I realized, by the way, the book was rejected many, many times before it got accepted. And then once it was accepted, the editors asked for an enormous revision that took me another eight months to pull off. Uh, again, those are people who believe in overnight success. And it just doesn't work that way. But in terms of voice, I think around that time, I was writing essays for literary magazines. Some of them are end up being woven in as part of the fabric of this book. I try, it's like an artificial, it's artificial, but it's not false, uh, you know, persona. I, I tried to hone on the page the most interesting version of me, you know? I, if you knew me and spent time with me, there are moments that I'm pretty interesting there are moments where I'm pretty funny. There are moments where I'm kind of dull. There are moments where I kind of babble and you want to say, dinty, 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 stop. You're not making any sense. Um, the, the point at which I didn't try to sound like somebody else, I tried to sound like the most interesting version of me. And that's where editing comes in. My early drafts had the most interesting version of me, the funny me, the dull me, the you're droning on and on about something and you've lost track of what it is yourself, dinty me. Uh, when I learned to sort of edit out those less interesting parts of myself, but still be myself. Um, I think that's kind of where my voice came from. Um, I was a kid who cracked jokes all through high school. I was self-depreciating in a humorous way then and now. That's the voice that ended up on the page. And I, and I kind of, and I, I, I'm not the first writer to say this, but it's, I didn't even have to create it. I kind of had to let go of other things so it could come up to the surface. You know, your voice is inside you right now. Letting it come up to the surface is another thing entirely. And that that was that sounds a little woo-woo adjacent, but that's that was what happened to me around the time I was writing that book. Oh. I feel like in a way it's a leap of faith. Um, and I'm feeling around as I answer this, but I feel like it's almost a leap of faith to believe in these voices that we have a sense of. We almost have like a peripheral sense of, at least for me, it's there. There's something I'm working on. I'm chewing on something. And let me just give it the room it needs, you know, 
to to emerge and i i have faith in it i don't know what it wants to say yet but it's like a presence or a consciousness that i want to invest time in and learn more about and that that kind of sixth sense about the voice i think is is where i like to follow like i let that lead me and i feel like that might be a little bit about what you're saying here or maybe not <laughs> i don't know if you'd agree with what i just said no i i, th- I absolutely agree with what you just said that's 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 exactly what i'm saying yeah. So, okay, I have two more questions for you. And then I'm going to I'll let you go because I know I've kept you longer than I promised. Um, I have to ask you, you've written about growing up without your father being there. And I've written about my mother's absence. And I'm wondering how these decades later, you understand that loss. And if your approach to writing about it has changed. I've written a lot about it. I mean, I'm, um, if you if you if you have you know a spare month and want to read all of my books, go to the library, read them all, and you'll see that the loss of my father is in in my father was a, a severe alcoholic. Though he lived with us for the first ten years of my life, he was literally never there. Uh, he got off and went to work in the morning before I got up to go to school, and I was in bed at night before he came back from the bars. Um, so it was sort of an absent father who I saw for an hour on the weekends before he went to another bar. Um, so that that hole in my life is, is throughout all of my work, even some of my work, which you wouldn't think that would be part of it. How has my understanding of it changed? I mean, I, I certainly, as I get older and older and older, understand how little of it, of it was about me um, and how much of it was about the tragedy of his life. Um, I understand how many, when I was going through it, I thought I was the unhappiest boy in the world. That, that I, my father was both not there, I craved his attention, and it was an embarrassment to the family. He was a very public alcoholic. People knew and could see his behavior. But the older I get, the more I realize you know, it, it, it wasn't really about me. He was wrestling his own demons, and they were so strong. And other people, you know, part of being a nonfiction reader uh, who loves memoir and stories, is like other people have other stories. And there's heartbreaking stories out there. Yeah. Um, maybe that's the answer to the second part of your question is how my writing about it has changed. It's less, it's less trying to capture that five, seven, ten year old boy and how it felt for him and sort of looking at it with the, the, the longer lens of I'm in my 60s now. Uh, my father would have been, my father died at 62. I'm older than, I'm much older than he would have been or than he was. But kind of looking at it very differently from the other end of the of the periscope and sort of understanding it's it's part of the world it wasn't just part of my life these these family tragedies mm-hmm. and are there memoirs that you memoirs or books or craft books any anything that you'd like to that you that you actually recommend to students that you teach or that you think that you would like to give a shout out to here. Uh, sure, that's that's a forty minute question, but I, that's fine. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I taught for so many years, I could you know we could we could do a podcast just about Dinty talking about books. <laughs> I don't know it'd be that interesting. Uh, people should go back and read James Baldwin. Don't forget James Baldwin. I think he was such an important voice in shaping American memoir, both what he was willing to write about, talking about things people weren't talking about at the time, but it's just a lovely, lovely shaper of sentences and description. So I will go back to James Baldwin. I will 
I will throw a little bit of Joan Didion in, in there. What, what Joan Didion does so wonderfully is she writes about herself, but she also writes about the world around her. And, and I think more writers who are just writing memoir about themselves can learn from her that no, no, and the world I grew up in and the world that I'm in while I'm writing about it all can be part of the story too. She's also an amazing shaper of sentences and images and paragraphs. Everything Cheryl Strayed writes, but I'll just, because everybody's read her book wild, I'll say, no, no, go back and, and read some of her earlier essays in The Sun and other places. She's an amazing essayist and, and memoirist and writer. Much more contemporary, Casey Lehman's Heavy is, is, is an, an amazing book that I think uh, is shaping, even as we speak, what writers can do today because he broke new ground. Uh, the work of Maggie Nelson and Leslie Jameson, uh, so many other people. There's just there's a lot of contemporary writers doing a lot of uh, lyric, experimental, political, groundbreaking work. It's it's an exciting time to be editor of a magazine. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. And I guess finally, before I say goodbye, um, where is the best place for people to find you? Sitting in my office, pushing words around. Uh, I have a website, www.dintywmore.com. You can start there. And I'm on the Brevity blog as well, occasionally. But www.dintywmore.com is, is, is the first place to look. And I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. Or whatever Twitter's called right now. Well, at, at the time of this recording, it's called X, but who knows? Thank you so very much for this time that you took to share your experience and your thoughts on writing and the writing life and, and, and this important and incredible thing that we do. I love it. And I just want to thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure. Oh, thank you. It's a great conversation, and I appreciate you inviting me on. Hey, Memoir fam. Audible Books has partnered with Let's Talk Memoir to offer Let's Talk Memoir listeners a 30-day free trial of Audible. I listen to Audible Books when I'm driving, when I'm walking the dogs, when I'm cleaning up the house or folding laundry, all those times I can't use my hands and eyes to read memoirs and other books, I'm listening to them. It's a great way to keep on learning and taking in stories even when I can't turn pages. So if you would like to check out Audible, if you haven't yet done that, you can do so for free for the first 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com slash Let's Talk Memoir. That's www.audibletrial.com slash Let's Talk Memoir. Thank you, Audible, for being a Let's Talk Memoir partner. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.